everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, welcome back, everyone. It is Brandon Odo back here with Brian Bowling. Hello, everyone. And we continue to surge ahead with our, our trend of surgical critical care topics. Surge. Um, I see what you did there. Uh, exploring all the weird and wonderful things that uh, Brian, more than I these days, gets up to. But important areas overlap a lot with surgery and, uh, and can be things that we don't necessarily understand a great deal if we don't spend time in this area. So we're going to explore transplant surgery specifically liver transplants, a really important area. I think even if you don't necessarily do these at your center because your patients may need them. Um, and we're going to be helped out here with Dr. Mira Gupta, who's a transplant surgeon down at the University of Kentucky uh, Healthcare Transplant Center. That's you know Brian's area uh, and surgical director of their kidney and pancreas transplant program. Um, so we're going to tr- see what we can learn about this topic. It's going to be a little bit of an overview because there's certainly a lot more than we're going to have time for today. Maybe we'll bring her back. Um, but I think it'll be educational for everyone. Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So we're going to start off a little bit. We Normally we do these cases and they're, they start off with a patient arrives to the ICU with blah, blah, blah. Uh, but because we feel like there's a lot of potential overlap here, with some of the stuff our medical colleagues see, uh, I'd like to start off way pre-op. Um, you're called by your colleagues on the medicine service to evaluate a 65-year-old gentleman who has some end-stage liver disease, mostly it seems from NASH cirrhosis. Um, he's also got hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, you know, the usual um, and, but making him a little trickier is he also has some hepatopulmonary syndrome. Um, he's on some oxygen now in the MICU, um, but otherwise fairly stable, but they call you and say, we think this guy could probably use your services. What goes into the workup when you go to see this guy and evaluate if he's even a candidate for a transplant? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, when we, get a phone call for a liver transplant evaluation. We go and we see the patient, uh, assess them from head to toe. We do a full H&P. We want to know everything about their medical history, uh, surgical history, et cetera. Um, Transplant uh, for liver is not just you go in and you transplant a liver. You have to consider all of the medical comorbidities and other ailments that the patient may have, including hepatopulmonary syndrome, so that you can appropriately pre-op or what we like to call prehab the patient, getting them ready for a potential transplant. Um, and then the intraoperative planning uh, management and postoperative management. So We'll see the patient. Oftentimes, it's the first time they've ever heard of liver transplant. They're often overwhelmed, but we try to make them feel comfortable. So from the head to toe, we assess them for the severity of disease. So end-stage liver disease from head to toe, things like um, hepatic encephalopathy. How how much do they understand what they're going through and uh, uh, realize uh, how sick they are. Can they understand what a transplant is and what it means um, and how big of an operation it is? Um, are they on the right medications to treat their uh, hepatic encephalopathy? 
um, what are the side effects of the medications that they're on for, for encephalopathy, et cetera. And then we move down to the heart and lungs. You know, hepatopulmonary syndrome is uh, just what it's called, hepatopulmonary. So uh, when someone has end-stage liver disease, they develop um, portal hypertension and a lot of vasodilation from collaterals that go back to the heart. Uh, what can also happen is vasodilatory shunting from the right to the left heart without the exchange of oxygen. So a lot of these patients uh, suffer from hypoxemia because they have shunting um, in their lungs and they don't get well oxygenated. And that's that's a chronic onset. So a lot of these patients may be uh, saturating very at very low oxygen levels and still be okay because the onset of this uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome is very slow and indolent. Um, so when we see patients like this, we want to confirm that it's not something that would preclude them from getting a liver transplant, severe pulmonary hypertension, or any underlying lung problems like interstitial lung disease, et cetera. So we want to make sure that it's truly hepatopulmonary um, and uh, see what workup they've already had. Uh, then again, their cardiac function. Um, if they've had any uh, cardiac workup, ex including an echo or a stress in the past, um, incidentally, we do those things as part of the transplant evaluation. So if they haven't had it, we would do that for hepatopulmonary. We would use, we would do an echo with a bubble study um, to assess for shunting, and then we would see that. Um, and then we work our way down to the abdomen. Um, if they've had any endoscopies, uh, if they have esophageal or gastric varices, uh, whether or not they've had any bleeding symptoms in the past, history of um, um, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, infections, and obviously their abdominal surgical history. If it's complicated, if they've had any right upper quadrant surgery, we want to know about it so we can plan accordingly. And then part of the transplant evaluation would also be uh, cross-sectional imaging of the liver, not just to assess for the anatomy, but also to survey for possible hepatocellular carcinoma because patients who have end-stage liver disease are at risk for developing primary liver cancer and are and should be surveyed um, uh, yearly or every six months to um, watch for possible development of, uh, of cancer, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma being the most common. Um, and then moving down, um, any other problems, you know, we, we assess their kidney function because it is a big operation. Oftentimes, patients with end-stage liver disease do develop hepatorenal syndrome, um, and we want to uh, optimize their renal function and support the kidneys so that um, they don't uh, progress or get worse um, because renal failure in a liver, pa in a liver failure patient is, um, is a scary thing. Uh, nutritional status is also very important. Liver failure patients are often extremely malnourished. Their livers don't work, so they can't process a lot of the nutrients that they eat as efficiently. So um, oftentimes, if it's someone who's very malnourished, we may put a feeding tube down and start feeding them enterically if they can't get the calories that they need in order to um, optimize them so that they can undergo transplant. 
um, because we want them to recover. We want them to be able to heal afterwards, uh, et cetera. So um, once we assess all of those things, that's the surgical evaluation. Our hepatologists, our social workers, our dietitians, pharmacists, um, and other members of our multidisciplinary team will go and see the patient and uh, do their evaluation from, from their end. So our dietitians will help us optimize their nutritional status. Our pharmacists will touch base with them about their medications and um, whether or not they will um, be able to comprehend being on immunosuppression, uh, do a little teaching session about it, understand their current meds, um, and whether or not those would be contraindicated after transplant. Um, our social workers are extremely valuable uh, members of our team because liver failure patients who are undergoing transplant need a lot of support. Um, a lot of times they are so sick and they they don't know what's going on and they need a lot of family or friends support um, to help them through the process, understand their medications, help take care of them after transplant. And if they have good support, we know that they will do well. Um, so that's extremely important. Um, we often have their support people there when we teach them about their medications and we teach them about their after transplant care so that they succeed and they don't um, um, forget to take their medications and reject their organ one day. Um, so social work is extremely important. Um, and uh, then we have their testing. So we do a lot of uh, blood work. Uh, cardiac testing, including the echo and stress. Um, and then we do cross-sectional imaging of their abdomen and then their regular cancer screening. This gentleman's 65 years old, so we want to make sure he's up to date on his colonoscopies, his prostate screening. We check a PSA, et cetera. Um, and then finally, we also check a baseline arterial blood gas. So for hepatopulmonary syndrome patients, this is extremely important because we want to know what their baseline blood gases on room air and on their supplemental oxygen if they're on it so that post-op as they recover we can see how um, their lungs are recovering and it can take weeks to months for hepatopulmonary syndrome to um, improve and get better they may not get back to um, a normal saturation but they will definitely improve uh, are the criteria for uh, eligibility and, and when transplant is indicated uh, set out in stone, or is this more kind of a gestalt based on if you think it would benefit more than harm someone, or does it depend on the diagnosis? That's a very good question. Um, in my mind, I think there are set criteria um, for transplant, uh, meaning the patient has to be well enough, get through their testing their hearts have to be healthy enough to undergo a major operation. Um, sometimes we'll discover that patients may have severe coronary artery disease and they may need a, a cabbage in the setting of liver failure and wouldn't be candidates because they wouldn't be safe to operate on. Um, so yes and no. There are certain things that they should be able to, um, to meet, including their pulmonary testing and their cardiac testing. And as long as they don't have any active cancer, non-liver cancers, um, not related to their liver failure um, or liver cancer within criteria, um, uh, which is called Milan criteria. So if they do have hepatocellular carcinoma 
or cholangiocarcinoma present um, at the time of transplant evaluation. They have to meet uh, criteria in order to be eligible for getting a transplant. And that criteria includes for hepatocellular carcinoma, no um, up to three tumors, each measuring three centimeters or less, or one large tumor measuring up to five centimeters or less. But outside of that, if they have more than that in terms of tumor burden or tumor outside of the liver, then they would not qualify because they have they technically have disseminated disease. For cholangiocarcinoma, there are specific, very stringent protocols for us to be able to do liver transplant for those patients. It's very uh, detailed, um, but the long, the long and short of it is it has to be a hyalur cholangiocarcinoma that's unresectable um, and would only be cured from a liver transplant, and it has to be three centimeters or less. And then the patient undergoes staging protocols and neoadjuvant therapy for, for that particular type of cancer. So as long as we rule out cancer, um, rule in all of the testing that they're able to get through, um, then they should be um, eligible. Sometimes patients, um, especially in Kentucky, may be too large. And so if their MELD score or the model for end-stage liver disease score, which is how we see how sick their liver is, if their MELD score isn't too high, then we may wait and try to help them lose weight, help them with their diet, etc. cetera. Um, but if they are too sick, sometimes we will just um, take everything with a grain of salt and go for it if we all feel comfortable with that. Um, so it really also depends on the patient, how strong they are, how how hard they want to fight, if they have good support. Um, and, you know, sometimes we surprise ourselves because um, we operate on patients who are super sick and they are pretty remarkable, fight really hard and get through it. Um despite the odds. What about, I don't want to derail you too much, Brian, but uh, what about acute liver failure? You know, some of these people are extremely sick and it's not a situation you would imagine that doing a major surgery would be a, a great idea, but there may not be a lot of choices. I mean, you would never do something more elective like a kidney transplant in some of these people. But I mean, how do you decide which of these people who is dying of liver failure is going to benefit from a transplant or, you know, versus not survive it or, or not survive the perioperative period? Yes. So acute liver failure is very different than chronic liver failure. And a lot of times we will see patients who have acute on chronic liver failure. So this type of group, the acute on chronic liver failure patients are patients who have underlying liver disease. They may or may not know about it. And then something tips them over to decompensate, and then they present as acute liver failure. If we discover this, then a lot of times there is some sort of provoking event that puts them into liver failure, and we want to figure out what that provoking event is. Oftentimes, it's an infection or some sort of insult um, that we want to uh, figure out um, so that if we consider transplanting this patient, we're not immunosuppressing someone who's actively infected or septic. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, we do often transplant these people. If they're in liver failure, transplant is the only option. Um, and it's either that or they, they could die. So um, 
sometimes we're forced and a lot of times we go for it and and they do okay. We have amazing liver anesthesiologists who support us during surgery. Um, but it also can be a little scary because you don't know how the patient is going to do. We have to work them up quickly um, and get them ready for a transplant before um, they circle the drain and get into a place where we can't um, salvage them. For um, a mental status standpoint, um, encephalopathy is extremely important to keep an eye on for these acutely ill liver patients. Uh, a lot of them have uh, stage three or stage four encephalo encephalopathy. So sometimes we wonder about their intracerebral pressure um, and to the point where they may end up in the ICU and they need ICP monitoring because they're just not coherent enough. They're intubated. They're on pressors, et cetera. So those are the patients we really worry about um, because we don't know if they will recover. Um, and we certainly don't want them to herniate in an attempt uh, to do their liver transplant. So we have to evaluate these patients um, very quickly and uh, very seriously um, to make sure that we, we catch them before they get too ill. Um, for the acutely ill, acute for the truly acute liver failure patients, these are patients who have maybe an acute viral illness, acute, acute hep A, or um, acute, we've seen one acute hep B. We have We've seen uh, alcohol, I mean, uh, Tylenol toxicity, uh, acute Tylenol toxicity um, in patients. And these are patients with normal underlying liver um, with no cirrhosis, and they just go into acute liver failure. These patients, I think, can be a little bit more tenuous because they don't have the collaterals that chronic liver disease patients have. You have to be very careful with um, with the operation. They may not tolerate clamping of their vena cava very well. Their blood pressure may just tank and you might have to put them on bypass. So um, these patients can be can be very challenging and, and also very important to uh, work up quickly and get listed. Um, a lot of these patients can be young. So we've seen, you know, acute Wilson's syndrome in young patients who've required a quick workup and listing and transplant. Um, so figuring out what the uh, etiology is um, and making sure it doesn't preclude them from getting a transplant, making sure that they have uh, the medical support and critical care support that they need to prove that they are recoverable with a transplant. Uh, we'll scan these patients with a CT scan uh, of their head to make sure they don't develop worsening cerebral edema before going to the OR. We've done that before um, because we don't we don't want to put a liver new liver into someone who's just never going to wake up. Um, so uh, we we do our best. And uh, a lot of times uh, uh, these patients do pretty well with the liver transplant. Um, and we have some things we can do pre-op and intra-op to optimize them and, and uh, support them so that they can recover from all of it. So obviously there are more people who need transplants than there are organs to transplant. How do you, let's say we've, you've worked this guy up, you've decided that he's a good candidate and you decide to list him. What's the process of 
organ allocation? Like, how long is he going to, is he looking at a wait? Um, what's the sort of triage process to decide who gets transplanted when? The way that organ allocation works is a patient getting listed will have a MELD score. MELD is, like I said, model for end-stage liver disease. And that is a score based on the labs. So the labs include creatinine, bilirubin, INR, and sodium. And the most recent MELD score is MELD 3.0. And it also includes albumin. So that's a new... uh, uh, a thing that's been added. All of those labs together get thrown into a calculator and it spits out a number between six and 40. The higher the number, the sicker the liver. And this is very objective. It's purely based on the labs. It doesn't uh, reflect the suffering of liver failure patients. So it doesn't take into account encephalopathy, um, uh, malnutrition, swelling, things people just don't feel good from, ascites, um, risk of GI bleeding. So it's not a perfect uh, score, but it's the most objective one we have. And that's how we list patients for transplants. So the patients who have the highest MELD score are at the top of the list because they are, uh, quote unquote, the sickest. And so um, liver transplant um, is not a waiting game. You don't get put on the list and then you wait your turn. It's based on how sick you are. So we could see a patient who is relatively sick with a meld in their 20s, suffering a little bit, um, and list them, but they're not, their meld score is not super high. So we'll keep a really close eye on them. We'll follow up with them in our clinic. We'll get frequent labs on them like every two to four weeks um, and follow their meld score. We'll also work with our hepatologist to try to um, optimize them, get their medications adjusted, help them feel better. Sometimes their meld scores will improve temporarily, but um, over time, as their meld scores start to increase, meaning their liver function gets worse, we're able to capture a rising MELD score and get them uh, higher on the list with updating their MELD score. So um, that's how we list patients, okay? Um, The studies show, historically, we've always rested on a MELD score of 15 or greater would uh, justify doing a transplant on someone. over the risk of dying from the operation. Um, but lately that that number has dropped. Now they're saying a MELD score of greater than nine uh, would prove to be beneficial to transplant over the risk of dying from the operation. So we're seeing more and more patients with lower MELD scores um, coming through. Um, they may not necessarily get offers for a liver transplant, but at least in case they decompensate somehow, uh, we're there for them and we can capture their rising MELD score and potentially get an offer for them. Now, with allocation, when a patient is listed at a center like the University of Kentucky, we have a list. Um, we have a list based on blood types. So we have different lists based on blood types. So if there's an organ offer, it's for a specific blood group. And then all patients who are listed at our center with that blood group will show up on the list. 
the allocation works such that if there's a donor at a specific hospital in the country, the government will draw a circle around that hospital with a 500 nautical mile radius. And all transplant centers with listed patients would be on that list if they're within that circle. They're called proximity circles. So that means that a donor at any hospital um, could potentially have a transplant allocation list that looks very different than a donor at a different hospital. Um, But this was put in place um, a few years ago in an effort to try to optimize patients' chances of getting transplanted across wider geographic uh, areas because a lot of the urban centers or urban, um, urban located transplant centers had patients who had really high MELD scores that couldn't get transplanted because they just uh, didn't have any offers. So they decided to widen the proximity circles. And that's variable depending on the donor type, but um, that's how allocation works uh, in an effort to um, utilize organs that are available and get them to patients who are very sick. You get a call, right, the, from the organ procurement organization, the OPO, um, <clears throat> that says we have, you know, we have an off potential offer for you. Do they call you and say we have an offer for Bob Johnson, or we have an offer for you? And you look at your list and go, that would be good for Bob Johnson. Um, so they would call me and offer me an organ for a specific patient. So they will go down their list patient by patient and call the transplant center where the patient is listed and say, we have an organ offer for this specific patient. And then can you review the offer and let us know if you accept? If I don't, then they keep moving down the list. Um, But I've already reviewed the organ offer. So say, you know, Bob Johnson is listed and I say no for him, but I have a recipient further down the list that I would consider it for, um, then I'll have already reviewed the offer and know if they're going to call me back in case the other centers turn it down. But, you know, by and large, we have a, we have a pretty good sense on whether or not an organ is usable. So we rarely ever skip and go down the list. Um, but yes, so the, the list that they use to, to allocate is based on that proximity circle. So multiple centers with multiple patients will be listed in order based on the MELT score. Um, And then they'll keep going down the list until they find a patient whose center is accepting for them. And what would make you not accept an offer? Um, So for a liver patient, I look at the donor BMI. Um, I look at the... uh, circumstances in which the donor passed. Um, I look at all of the serologies of the donor. So any viral serologies that could be positive. I review any imaging on the donor. And I also uh, look at the lab trends. So I want to see liver function tests that are acceptable. Uh, A lot of times uh, donors will come in after an insult or a trauma and their liver function may be under stress. Um, if their liver function isn't recovering or say the donor is in multi-system organ failure, that might not be a good liver to accept for a patient. Um, if we discover that the donor liver is cirrhotic, 
and the donors, a donor or the donor family didn't know about it. Of course not. Like I wouldn't take a sick liver and put it into a patient who needs a good liver. Um, if the donor had, um, fatty liver disease, I may ask for a biopsy of the liver before I would accept to make sure that the degree of fat in the liver is not too much where I, I wouldn't feel comfortable using that because donor livers that have too much fat content are at risk of primary non-function, meaning you put the liver in and it never works. We're in a new era of liver transplant where we're using um, warm perfusion pumps for livers now. And what warm perfusion is, is it allows us to be a little bit more aggressive, use livers that we may not, where, where we may otherwise not use um, because of the time constraints or whatever, when the organ is out of the body and we only have eight hours to get it in. So now we can actually recover the liver from a donor, put it on a pump where it has warm blood perfusing it allow it to recover. We trend the lactate, we trend the glucose, we trend the oxygen, et cetera, in that liver and we put it on a pump and we let the liver recover. And that's amazing because then when, as the liver recovers and we confirm that it's a good liver, it's recovering and the LFTs are improving, we can actually say, yes, we can use this organ and start the operation on the recipient not worry about time constraints or having to work really quickly to get the organ in and do the transplant and the recipient on reperfusion does not have as much stress to their heart and their body um, that they would if they were to get an organ um, that was flushed in cold preservation solution and just shipped over. There are certain criteria by which we use the pump and these are for Donors who die from a cardiac death, donors who have um, who may have fatty liver disease or a high BMI, where we're worried about uh, the chances of primary non-function, um, or donors who um, may be further away or might might need uh, to have a longer uh, cold time because maybe the recipient is a retransplant or maybe they've had a lot of surgeries in the past and it might take us a while to get the liver out than the old liver um, so we might put the liver on a pump if we anticipate a really long time before we'll be able to put the new liver in so those are just some of the things that we're that we're starting to do now in order to increase organ utilization and um, transplant more patients especially patients with lower melts uh, right because those are the patients who are suffering, but not necessarily with melt scores that are high enough to get them a perfect organ offer. Okay. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so you get the offer, you accept the offer. Um, we're getting our patient ready for surgery. Um, real quickly, because I want to kind of get to the post-op care, but, uh, but real quickly for those of us who, who aren't in the operating room, um, what does a liver transplant look like? These are not quick operations. Um, what, what all happens? So a liver transplant, um, is a, a big team effort. The anesthesiologists do a great job. They place, um, a, a large, uh, swan, a large line called a, a hog is what we call it. Um, 
and uh, a swan through that into the right heart. Um, they also place a central line on the other side, on the other neck, multiple IVs, uh, two A lines fully. So the patient is well monitored. Um, and then we get started. So we make a large right subcostal incision. It also extends to the left subcostal space. And sometimes we extend it up in the midline, um, just under the xiphoid to get to the liver. So we retract the ribs up, we dissect down, and we mobilize the liver. And then we do the, the hilar dissection, including the portal vein, the artery, the bile duct, etc. And it's really important that we um, do the dissection carefully because we need to preserve the blood vessels feeding the new liver because we're going to be sewing the new liver to those. Um, once we uh, determine all of our anatomy and we've dissected everything out, we get around the vena cava, okay, uh, behind the liver, and uh, we get ready to clamp or partially clamp the vena cava and take the liver out. Uh, before we do that, we test clamp. So we clamp the vena cava to make sure that the recipient is tolerating major caval clamping and not dropping their preload too much. Um, because if that happens, we need to put them on bypass. So if they tolerate it, then we're okay to take the liver out and then we sew the new liver in. So that's the pre and hepatic phase. Once we get into the anhepatic phase, we move pretty quickly because the liver is out of the body and the patient can get pretty sick anhepatic. And we try to minimize that time to less than an hour, preferably less than 45 minutes. To sew the new liver in, we need to do the vena cava anastomosis, the portal vein anastomosis, the artery, and the bile duct. But before we reperfuse, which means we release the clamps, we do at least the vena cava anastomosis and the portal vein anastomosis and reperfuse. That way, blood is restored and circulating throughout the body, and the liver gets reperfused with blood. After that, we do the artery end to end, and then the bile duct. Um, reperfusion can be a little rocky, so we always um, communicate with our anesthesiologists. They can, there can be a lot of right heart strain. Patients can go into right heart failure acutely. A lot of electrolyte abnormalities um, that the uh, anesthesiologists are well-equipped to deal with. Um, a lot of volume shifts. I mean, draining five, six liters of ascites and then, you know, blood loss, et cetera, plus cable clamping can really dry a patient out and stress the kidneys. So um, our anesthesiologists are on top of making sure all the volume shifts are are uh, equilibrated and uh, better managed um, to keep the patient more euvolemic and, and well hydrated while they're going through this operation. We finish up, we get to the ICU post-op. What is, uh, what is sort of your first sort of standard other than the, the typical in that you would any patient that you're admitting to the ICU post-op, what, what, what's included in your sort of post-op management for the average liver transplant. Yes. So they come out of the operating room still intubated and they still have all of their original lines from surgery, their SWAN included. Um, and we provide the ICU team with the brief history and intraoperative events. The things that we want to look for is we want to make sure from head to toe, the patient is waking up. So we would like for the patient to uh, not be sedated right away. Once they get to the ICU, we want their 
sedation to wear off, which means their liver's working and clearing it. Um, and then once they wake up and prove that they didn't have a stroke in the operating room and they can move their arms and legs or at least have some sort of semblance of a mental status, then we can sedate them if they're not ready to extubate. Um, the next thing, we get a chest x-ray to make sure all the line placements are okay. Um, look at their lungs. Oftentimes, these patients have pleural effusions, and we want to get a sense of whether or not they need um, their, their chests drained. Um, and then we watch their hemodynamics. So we have CVP goals. Oftentimes, they're at least 8 to 12. Uh, we have blood pressure goals. We don't really... Um, care about the MAPS. We care more about the systolic blood pressure because uh, liver failure patients always have low diastolics. They're all venodilated. So um, if their diastolics are always low, their MAPS are always going to be low. So we usually shoot for a systolic blood pressure of greater than 90. Um, pulmonary, you know, if they have hepatopulmonary syndrome, uh, we let them rest on the ventilator a little bit. And then we slowly wean them off and they and they come off pretty well, but we understand that they're going to still be on oxygen, still need a lot of support, uh, respiratory therapy, et cetera. Sometimes we'll consult pulmonary as well. Uh, and then we keep an eye on their drains. We have instructions for how often their drains need to be drained. We communicate with the nurses really well. They let us know if they're concerned about bleeding or bioleaking. Um, and then nutrition, obviously patients aren't fed right away. Um, they are when they're extubated and have a bedside, you know, uh, swallow, et cetera. Uh, and then their immunosuppression. So they're given high dose steroids in the operating room. They're on a steroid taper coming out of the operating room. And then we start their oral immunosuppression within a day or two after surgery. Uh, their renal function also really important. Oftentimes these patients have a little bit of AKI and we try to support them with uh, colloid, including albumin, at least for the first 48 hours around the clock, uh, so that their intravascular space is, uh, is resuscitated uh, appropriately. Um, and then the antibiotics periop. A lot of these patients are chronically thrombocytopenic, so we keep a very close eye on that because we want to restart their uh, DVT prophylaxis, um, but we can't until, until we know that they're not bleeding. And then finally, we get a liver transplant ultrasound within 24 hours after their liver transplant to ensure that the inflow um, to the liver is okay um, and that, that their uh, liver is, is taking well. Now, I know um, a lot of these people, like you said, are very thrombocytopenic and um, folks who don't deal with this very often might be surprised at uh, how low we let platelets get without transfusing. Um, in terms of blood product transfusion post-op, what, what's your sort of guideline in terms of red cells, but also platelets, FFP, cryo, et cetera? Yes. So we try to keep the hemoglobin above uh, eight or above uh, early post-transplant, not chronically post-transplant, but within the first week, um, just because we know they're getting albumin and they're going to have uh, hemodilution with that. Uh, so eight or above for that platelet count, we want to try to keep above 20. Uh, so we'll be okay with a dose of platelets here and there if it's above, if it's below 20. We certainly don't want them to have a spontaneous bleed. And then um, INR is an interesting one. A lot of times the liver will recover, but we do order vitamin K um, for uh, once a day dosing for the first three days if the INR is above two. Uh, so we don't usually give FFP, 
um, unless we think that there's, you know, bleeding that we think will stop or coagulopathy that just hasn't hasn't settled out yet. Um, but uh, very rarely will we give FFP if we think the liver is working. And how concerned are you for things like graft thrombosis versus bleeding when it comes to patients who are coagulopathic or particularly um, with low, low platelets? Yes. Yeah, so um, the operating surgeon will voice their concerns. So patients who have issues with coagulopathy and procoagulants, including patients who have portal vein thrombosis prior to transplant and we thrombectomize their portal vein in the operating room, you know, we, mer- we may worry that their portal vein may um, re-thrombose. Uh, but a lot of times the portal vein flow is so great and we'll see that in the operating room that we're not worried about it. The artery, if there are reconstructions of the artery or if we do a jump graph, we certainly do want the patient to be on an aspirin uh, as early as possible as long as their platelet count is um, acceptable and stable enough. Uh, but we do worry about that and that's why we get uh, the ultrasound of the liver within the first 24 hours to confirm that everything's okay. Obviously, if the patient's on a lot of pressors, we worry about the artery going down in the setting of extreme hypotension. That has happened in the past um, for patients who come in post-transplant who are either septic or have heart failure, um, and it's devastating. So uh, we keep a really close eye. Resuscitation is extremely important, uh, but you know it's a balance. Um, bleeding versus clotting um, the, the general sense is bleeding is better than clotting because you can always wash out the bleeding or fix the bleeding, but clotting is bad. It's so oftentimes it's not something you can fix. So, um, if someone's oozing a little bit, we'll, you know, resuscitate them, support them. Once their liver recovers a little bit more, they'll stop bleeding. If they need to go back to the operating room to wash them out, um, of a big hematoma, we can always do that once they're a little bit more stable. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's always a balance and that's where good communication between, uh, our team and the ICU and anesthesia, et cetera, is also extremely important and also very helpful. So for the sake of time, we're just going to assume that this gentleman does very well. Um, and one thing that I think is surprising to people sometimes is how, how well these patients can do postoperatively. And this is a huge surgery and sometimes they're out of the ICU the next day. I mean, even, I mean, what's, what's a typical post-op course look like Uh, barring complications and stuff? We, we tell patients that the typical hospital stay is anywhere between seven to 10 days. Um, and these are for patients who are coming in from home, uh, not suffering from in the hospital or decompensating with, uh, recent infections. Sometimes in patients, we'll potentially even send them home on postoperative day five if they're really um, doing well at an accelerated rate. Um, but one of the limiting factors for recovery is their uh, physical function. A lot of these patients um, are extremely weak and have muscle atrophy, et cetera. So our physical therapists are wonderful and help us figure out if they need rehab. Uh, placement, et cetera. So um, they may stay in the hospital a little bit longer if they need rehab placement. Um, obviously, if they have another, you know, post-op complication that we didn't anticipate heart failure, you know, renal failure, et cetera, then they may be in the hospital a little bit longer. All right. 
Well, I think this has been a really nice overview of the process in general. Like it said, for people who don't have much experience with it or understand it. Um, and maybe we'll have to have you back sometime to talk about some of the pitfalls and things that can go wrong um, post-operatively. But Brandon, do you have, a, you have anything else you want to add in? I'll just close us with a, one question, surely out of curiosity. Um, if you transplant a liver and the patient does not do well and dies for reasons unrelated to their liver, it's like the cerebral edema we mentioned, can that liver be recovered and transplanted again? If it's under the, whatever the circumstances are, most of the time they cannot uh, for a liver transplant. Um, it, I can't say it's never been done, but if it's in an acute setting where the patient uh, was recently transplanted and they their liver is failing and they they end up dying, then absolutely not. Um, if their liver is working and it is someone who has cerebral edema and just never wakes up, I think that might actually uh, be uh, an indication to donate so long as the family is comfortable with that. Uh, but keep in mind, this is a transplant recipient. It's an organ going from one person to another person and then potentially to somebody else. Um, so it would really just depend on um, the situation, how healthy the organ is, uh, what the chances are that we would be able to get that patient back down to the operating room, allocate the organ, um, and uh, and donate to somebody else. So not impossible, but rather a niche case. Liver failure patients tend to be uh, rather systemically ill. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and we hope this was helpful uh, to everybody else. As always, this is just uh, for educational purposes and our own opinions, not necessarily those of our respective employers. And oh, for please do not assume this is medical advice. Uh, this is just educational stuff only. So thanks a lot, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>